Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello. You are receiving a call from White Williams. An inmate at a correctional facility. Press 1 to consent to the delivery of a pre-recorded message with information on how you can arrange to receive calls from your incarcerated loved one. Your cell phone location may be collected and possibly used for investigative purposes. You are now being transferred to Securus Customer Care. Thank you for calling Securus Technologies the leading
Your confirmation number is 20180117145420715759. Wow. If you would like me to repeat that, press 9. No. Your Advanced Connect account has been successfully opened. You can start receiving calls within an hour. Goodbye. This conference is being recorded. Oh, my bad. <laughs> okay. Everybody's here. Okay. Yeah. Can you hear him, Wayne? Oh, yeah. Bang, can you hear Wayne? I can. Can you hear me? Okay, yeah. yeah. No problem. Okay, is this Payne? Is, is that your... Yeah, this is Payne. That's my first name. We got Payne, Wayne, and Dwayne. <laughs> All right. To tell it my way... It is, to me, is not really what's important because my way is the right way, and it's the truth about what happened. You know, to me, you know, let let the book fall where it may, you know, where, wherever, because it, there's only one truth. Truth is true, you know, and and all this, I guess, the fake news as we say as we hear all this, you know, I'm not into that either. And the truth in this case is, is it's really simple. It's not complex or anything, but it's just that it's the truth that people may not want to hear. And it's the truth that they have to hear to understand what happened and it continues to happen. Now, let me give you just a little... So now, and by the way, if time goes, we have to call up and call up, because I'll explain to you as we go to mechanics of how we got to communicate and all, because it's kind of weird here, you know. So so, so basically, what, we're, what we were looking for from a documentary point of view is a multi-part thing to tell the story. You can't tell it in 60 minutes like you and I both know. It's not important. In other words, people don't need to hear and see what... That, that's not what's important. These other people have a story to tell. They're going to tell my story for me. That's what I'm saying. You, you understand what I'm getting at? You're going to... You, you will fully understand once we get into this. Because one thing about prison, you can't fool these guys in here. If these people thought I had killed somebody or done something like that, I'd have been dead the, the first day I hit the county jail. Are you understanding me? I'm in a closed security prison in a dorm with 80 other inmates shanks not all that floating around you got crips bloods gd all kind of games here and i got darn good relations with all of them. if they thought any i wouldn't be here are you understanding what i'm saying this is the reality you're going to get to tell in this story man you know you can't fool with con <laughs> they can smell us they can smell a rat if there's a rat you know it's almost like a dog you know uh, a dog knows an evil person from the good they'll start growling you know so so, you know, it'll come out. This isn't about Wayne. This isn't just about me. This is for all those families who never got justice uh, of all these years. They deserve some answers. I, because I'm in a prison now with two family members. I'm here with the uncle and a cousin of two of the murder victims. We play ball every day together. Do you understand what I'm saying? We need to tell that story. I see that hurt and pain. They've shared, we have shared things. There's a bond right there that needs to be told. Uh, family members we're in contact with, they have given us information, and in at least eight of the cases, they know who killed their people, but the police refuse to act on. These are the things that we need to bring out in these documentaries. I'd heard from the FBI, the APD, and victims' families. Now it's time to hear from Wayne. I asked Wayne what he wanted to say. What did he personally want to put out to the world? My thing is put the facts out and it speak for itself. We don't need to doctor it up. Just, just put it out there and, 
when we explain like things like the bridge, so-called bridge incident, what did and did not happen, like Dwayne and I have talked to Steve, it'll make sense now once we can go through it. You, you'll hear it all. You aren't going to believe it. It's incredible. Also, uh, uh, in, in the podcast, in other words, there's another component uh, on this. I have been doing a, a lot of work with the younger generation, and particularly the music committee, community to get them involved. Okay, one of which, by the way, is my cellmate. He's a 21-year-old kid, grew up in everything. He's a writer, not only a rap star, but he's very intelligent. He actually wrote that the name of my uh, life story is called Shattered Dreams. He actually wrote the theme song for that. And I want to include in the podcast through Dwayne some of his writings and all comments on the social commentary. You know, that's one. That's another way of telling it, reaching the younger audience. So what you and the reason why this is somebody, and you may find it's incredible, but this is somebody who lives with me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We're on the same record. He knows me probably better than my own family at this point. And if you want to know what Wayne Williams is really like, Anthony Spencer is the person you ask. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? And the other part I'm asking you to do, like I said, is, is on the young man I want to launch as recording artist, Anthony Spencer. Let me first give you the Thank you for using Securus. Goodbye. Just, just hold tight. He's going to call back in like 30 seconds. I was pretty surprised. Did Wayne have an artist he was trying to manage from prison? Another young black male like Jimmy, but this time, the artist was his cellmate. From what I could tell, Wayne was doing in prison exactly what he was doing in Atlanta in the 1980s, being a talent scout. Okay, we back. Okay. Like I said, that's my roommate, and, and he's gonna, you know, uh, I, I really want to tell in music his words about as a, as, a, as a young kid, just hearing about this, about getting that story out to the young people. You understand what I'm saying? That's a powerful way. As a matter of fact, uh, what I want you to do, I want you to just introduce yourself briefly to him right here. Here he is right now. Just tell him who you are, what we're going to be doing just very, but here he is. Hey, how you doing, sir? Pretty good. How you doing? Likewise, likewise. Uh, well, like Wayne was saying, uh, my name is Anthony Spencer, and uh, uh, upon me, you know, I just started, like, really becoming aware of everything that's going on, been going on for some time, and it was really, like, hell being removed from my eyes, and I'm, I just been doing a lot of writing, theme writing on those type of things. Oh, yeah, I'm working on something, like, specifically for this, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to have it done, like, I'm going to have it done as soon as possible, like, no later than... Tomorrow, like I, I have to finish. Here's one. Okay, yeah, that, he he keeps he keeps me level here. <laughs> he keeps me level. This was almost unbelievable to me. Had Wayne tried to promote fellow inmates as artists before, or was this the first time? And how exactly could someone develop a music career from prison? Anthony sounded like a young, eager, and amiable guy, and above all, he sounded excited to send me his music. Inspired by Wayne's story. This is somebody who knows me better than anybody. And we need to put him out there because the public relations are trying to reach the age group. You go, when you meet this guy and his family, you will understand. 
we need to put him out there. Get with Dwayne, get with his mother, and we want to go ahead and we want to put him out there and eventually land him out there. It's not just an artist, but a, but a commentary. And, and, and basically, he's got his own story to tell, and you probably end up, he's got the type of story that should end up a lifetime by himself. And in the meantime, uh, Payne, get in t- touch with uh, Mrs. Uh, Spencer's mom. She's in Atlanta. I'm going to call, first I'm going to call uh, Anthony's mom and then tell her that I'm going to be giving giving her, giving you her information. These phone calls with Wayne and Dwayne took a lot of coordinating. The prison email system, phone protocol, and of course our schedules. It took multiple calls before I began meeting anyone outside of the prison. I asked Wayne why he thought he was in jail today. Some people I talked to seemed to think he was a scapegoat and that maybe this whole thing was orchestrated. Dwayne Hendricks went as far as to say it was a full-fledged conspiracy, but I wanted to hear what Wayne thought. Hear me clear. That was not and never was a conspiracy to get me before the fact. Nobody knew the route I was going to take that night of May 22nd regarding that Not even me. I am a Gemini. Gemini. There's that word again. The band that Wayne was developing in the late 70s. Now, Wayne was using it as his astrological inspiration for how he lived his life including that fateful night on the Jackson Bridge. Gemini is symbolized by twins, dual personality, volatility, and a tendency to switch up routines. Okay, by birth, I'm a Gemini. That was a last-minute decision I made because I'm the type of person I'm liable to change my mind in a heartbeat. Or when I, I like driving, getting in a car, and just going. You understand what I'm saying? I'm a free spirit. That was a decision I made. The only conspiracy that came in was once my name hit those FBI computers and it got to Washington, that's when they panicked because they had a ran contra going and because two people in government knew of my background working for the agency and they were afraid to ever expose that. The state, Lewis Slayton, didn't even want to prosecute me. They had a right. meeting held on June the 20th. The, the Sunday before, the, excuse me, the Saturday before in which George Bush personally come down and threatened them and say, if you don't arrest Wayne Williams, the feds will take this case and prosecute it as a civil rights violation. Slayton and, didn't even want to prosecute this case. I have nothing but love for Atlanta and Fulton County and Georgia. My enemy is the federal government. It still is. It is not those people. If it was up to let me tell you something. The, the sheriff of Fulton County, when I was in Fulton County Jail, but before I went to trial, when I had my record, a lot of people, that's a hill behind the old jail. I used to go out with one deputy who didn't even have a gun. We used to go out there across the street from the jail and go to the store. Now, that's how much they were concerned. And they say, you know, we ain't worried about this. Are you understanding what I'm trying to tell you? When a person does a crime, and the public doesn't understand it, say a burglary. If you do one burglary in a neighborhood and they've had 20 burglars in the neighborhood, they don't give a damn. You're going to wear all of those cases so they can close the books because prosecutors in Georgia are elected officials. They're not appointed. They're elected. And that's one of the biggest flaws in the criminal justice system. They go on votes. It's about closing cases. Bottom line. Whoever, whatever suspect they came up with, they're going to... You have one minute left. They, that's the way it works. It was simply a matter of record-keeping and closing cases to make it look good. Over 90% of the black community knows I didn't do this and thinks I'm innocent. But it, with the white community, it's just the opposite. It's only 
you know, 50% of the white community because of articles like CNN and what you have. It's, it's a racially polarized perspective. And the sad part about it is these white communities, part my language, don't know diddly shit about what happened. The ones who are telling you I didn't do this are the ones who know. But, you know, it, it's just like the thing going on with the police killings today and the, and the, the things in the stadium. In other words, Nobody will air about, well, let's just play by. That isn't the point. The point is, part of my language, just like in my case, if those athletes had been just any other person other than an athlete, part of my language, pain, but you're going to hear this, they would be just another nigga to anybody else. That's the same thing in this case. Are you understanding the relationships, why we have to tell it like this? Because the black community has a different perspective on the Atlanta murders than the white community. Totally different. Because they know, and they feel that their community has been slighted by the white community who was more concerned with just throwing money in this and having press conferences. That's that's the whole hurt. The caller has hung up. Wayne talked rapidly during our conversation. Maybe it was a habit formed from having to maximize time while using the prison phone system. Or maybe it's just Wayne. Some of what he was saying directly reflected the opinions of people like Monica Pearson and Kalinda Lee. These murders were not handled properly in the eyes of much of the black community. However, what he said about press conferences was a little conflicting. Didn't Wayne rally his own press conference at his house? If he was so opposed to sensationalizing the news, why would he have done that? The next thing Wayne brought up was his attorney, Lynn Watley. Next conference call, we're going to have to involve the attorney. Lynn, and I'm going to tell you point blank, I don't use this language, but he's an asshole, okay, to deal with, but he's an essential asshole to tell the story because he's been burnt so many times. I don't think people understand what Lynn's problem is, why he, he doesn't return calls, and that's what infuriates Dwayne. And I'm, you know, I've been through it myself with him. We've been through not, but let me tell you something. Lynn has done everything legally correct. He's been blocked in every step of the way by the courts and prosecutorial misconduct. And he, you're going to find out what his frustration is in the case because of a connection that, that Dwayne and I'll get into you, we'll be later on it. There was, he's not afraid of anything, but it has to do with some of his family. You'll understand as you talk with him on that. But but the main thing is, Lynn will be able to make available for you things like the court transcripts, and he'll be able to tell you what went on behind the scenes. You know, He'll be able to tell you what the Supreme Court Justice told us before he died about the call he got from the Vice President of the United States You know, during the uh, during the uh, original Georgia Supreme Court thing. He'll be able to tell you what happened uh, on the DNA test and when they went back in 2009 to, to test the two blood samples we had and they went back in the state, the very next day the state crime lab said, oh, we lost that overnight. He, you'll get all yeah. of that. Go ahead and pay that man a visit. Don't wait on me because he's heard of you. We talked about it, but you know what Lynn is? Go ahead and see him. But like I say. Don't get frustrated with him. When he talks crazy, talk crazy right back. Just Thank you for using Securus. Goodbye. In a matter of just a few minutes, Wayne made some pretty big claims about this case. From involvement from the vice president to lost evidence, I had to talk to his attorney, Lynn Watley. Hello, this is Lynn Please leave your message at the tone. Thank you. At the tone, please record your message. When you finish recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options.
No matter how many times I tried to call Wayne's attorney, Lynn Watley, I never got an answer. Finally, he responded to one of my texts and told me he was completely busy for the foreseeable future. Wayne said he would talk to me and that he would provide me with all the information I needed to see his side of the story clearly. But apparently, Lynn didn't have the time to talk. In fact, he seemed to be actively avoiding me. The next person I contacted, per Wayne's request, was Tracy, Anthony Spencer's mom, Wayne's cellmate. I wanted to know more about the person Wayne's been living with the past few years, especially given how highly Wayne spoke of him. Anthony Spencer, he is my oldest son. He's been a good kid all his life. Never in any trouble in school, not a reprimand or anything. Everybody loves Anthony. Miss goodness, his heart, and you know, he's a good person. And when the incident happened and he went to jail, everyone was in disbelief. So I said, okay, you know, let me have a fish fry. Let me try to raise some money to do something, maybe a lawyer, you know. So I went and bought all this fish, and I sold $600 worth of fish in two hours. That's a lot of fish. That's a lot of fish, but they came to support him, you know. He's, he's a really good person. Um, some of his friends had planned an armed robbery, a robbery to rob the Chinese delivery man. From what his mom told me, Anthony was likely at the wrong place at the wrong time. He wasn't part of the plan, but he was there. Besides that, I knew very few details about the incident. But the judge said at the end of the trial that he didn't want to sentence Anthony to 10 years. He knew that he didn't deserve that. Judge Kill. And it was, I felt it. It was heartfelt, you know. He didn't want to do that. But he said by law he had to. He had no choice. Anthony's in Tailfair Prison. Um, he started off in Waycross, and then he went to Valdosta, and now he's in Tailfair. Anthony has been in prison this summer seven years. How's that been? It's rough. Um, I have a 10-year-old, and Anthony spent so much time with him. And it hurts me to see them hurt, you know, because they, they miss their, their sibling, you know. Yeah, it, it's rough. You know, I feel like he should be out here. He made a mistake, but he should be out here living his life. He doesn't know how to drive. You know, I don't even know if he's ever even had sex. You know, I, you know, nothing. He hasn't, hasn't even begun to live his life. You know, Anthony does the newsletter in prison, and since he's been at Telfair, um, he met Wayne, and I think that helps to have someone that you can communicate with that's there and that really understands what's going on, opposed to me, really understanding what prison life is like. You know, when Anthony first emailed me and told me that he met Wayne Williams. I was like, what? Wait, who? Stay away from him. Do you know who that is? He was like, yeah, ma. I said, boy, that is accused of line of child murder. I said, now, I don't think he killed them kids, but I don't know what Wayne be doing. Stay away from his ass. You know exactly what I told him. 
And he was, like, kind of distraught, you know, like, and then he kept coming at me with it. Well, this person is going to call you, and this person is this person going to call you. And I'm looking at the email like, Psh, whatever, you know. <laughs> Recently, probably about a month or so ago, you know, and I could just hear in his voice how much his attitude and his spirit had lifted, you know. And I started listening to him. I said, this really means something to him. You know, I can't tell him what to believe and what to think. That's only for me to do for myself. Wayne, um, to me, sounds like he gives him good advice. Um, and I just hope their relationship is, is a good relationship. You know, like I said, I don't know too much about Wayne personally. But I spoke with Wayne a few weeks ago. And um, I was like, huh? Wayne, Wayne. So I called my daughter. I say, guess what? I just got off the phone with Wayne Williams. Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> and she was like, what, Mom? I was like, yeah. I was like, I can't believe this. And I called all my sisters. You know? <laughs> it was like meeting. It was I, He's an icon. You know? I mean, it's like, that was something. That's deep. You know? And I'm not into celebrities. You know, I'm I'm just not, you know, because they don't do nothing for me. So, you know, but to actually speak to Wayne Williams, and I know from doing little research that I've done on him and, you know, which didn't tell me too much, he's a very intelligent guy, very intelligent. I was just excited. You said he was a, like an icon, right? Yeah. What do you think he represents? Um, I don't know exactly what he represents. He represents um, himself, you know, and I know he's been advocating to get out of there, you know, and, 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 and like everybody else, he just wants to live his life. But he's, I think he's a good person. I think he probably was just a scapegoat, and he seemed kind of weird, you know, from when I look at the films and stuff back in the day, like, you know, a little nerdy type, you know, but he was smart, Smart. I know he was into electronics and radio, you know, but it's not like he kept to himself back then, you know. Um, it's, it's sad, but I don't know. I really don't know what he represents. I don't know what he represents. I don't. I talked to him. That was that brief um, five-minute conversation. What did he say to you? Um, he just told me, um, called me, addressed me. Miss McCain and told me who he was and then he proceeded to talk about Anthony and how bright and intelligent he really thinks he is and um, he's talented you know he told me how talented he is and he said he has his lawyer helping with Anthony's case and he said he didn't want anything he just wanted us to advocate you know for him um, in what way um, I'm assuming, like, his story or whatever he's trying to convey to the outside world, that he wants us to grab a hold of that and help convey the message. Because everybody doesn't listen to podcasts. Like I said, I never, I didn't even know what a podcast was. You know, and that's all he asks in return. As a mother, is there any part of you that has any sort of fear or sense of uneasiness 
that Anthony's cellmate was accused of doing something like that? I don't think, because I know, I don't think he did, he, he did anything. My fear was, for like five years, was that something would happen to my son, you know. Inside prison. Inside prison. That was my biggest fear. Yeah. You know, I just pray for him, you know. And he comes out of this thing unscathed yeah. and in his right mind. Yeah. You know, to be uh, become a productive citizen outside those walls, you know. And now I'm just like, I'm smiling every day because I know it's now we're on countdown. You know, I'm just ready for my son to get busy, get to work, live his life, find a nice lady, get married, have me some grandbabies, you know. Hey, what more could you ask for? You know, and I can fatten them up and feed them everything and bake them everything. You know, hey, just ready for them to come home. Of course, Tracy isn't the only one who's unsure about Wayne's conviction. After meeting Tracy, I spoke to another family member of a victim, Jeffrey Mathis' cousin, Mel. Growing up, Mel saw firsthand what Jeffrey's murder did to his family emotionally. And he told me his entire family doubts they'll ever get closure. What can you tell us about Jeffrey? Jeffrey, you know, he was a very good kid. He was very, you know, manable, smart. You know, he was, you know, playful, like to go to the, you know, stores and stuff and, you know, make pocket money and stuff. Like, he was a very good kid. And uh, the night he went missing, uh, his mother sent him to the store to run an errand for her. And he was taking so long to come back, so she sent his oldest brothers to go look for him. And he never did return. And it was over 11 months before they found him. What does your family think about what happened to him? Only thing we know is he just, he, he, back in, you know, in 1980, he went to the store and he never did return. So far as us ever knowing what really happened to him, probably never gonna know. You think Wayne Williams was involved in his murder? Mm, no, I never did think that. Why not? Well, it's, it, I couldn't really see him as really being anyone to hurt anybody. He was just too much of like an intelligent whiz kind of like guy, and he wanted to be like known into the media and, you know, kind of like a big entrepreneur guy. And I just can see him even hurting anybody. He just didn't look that energetic enough. To me, he didn't. But I don't know. If he is guilty of some of the murders, you know, I would advise, I would just, you know, hope for them to just say, well, we're going to just go after him for those and then bring the right other killers to justice for the rest of the cases and just properly prosecute them. My family has been through, you know, hell, like chaotic mess, you know, not knowing what happened. And we don't know anything. They had, they had to get it over with. They had to get it over with. And it was just like when they solved the case, it's like the world just stopped listening. We just really want to know what happened and why. That's about it. We just want to just get closure. And what's it going to take? Well, it's going to take the right people at the right time to come along and say, well, let me try to right this wrong. Just get these, get these families closure because they need it. If there are so many people like Mel and Anthony's mom who aren't convinced of Wayne's guilt and the only evidence of his involvement was trace fiber evidence, how was he in jail? Well, the FBI profilers played a huge part in that. At the time of the Atlanta child murders, FBI profiling was a pretty new practice. I asked McComas and Popcorn for more detail about the profile that was made prior to Wayne Williams' arrest. And I have to admit, it was eerily accurate. 
our profilers, John Douglas being one of them, had given us 21 points that we could look for that this guy uh, would uh, resemble. And one of them was is that he would be very conscious of the news media. And also John said he would be driving a white car, which he was. Um, he said he'd be an only child, which he was. I, I think out of the 21 out of the 21 points, he hit about 20 of them. It was spooky. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing science, which I've never understood. But, um, but we had two guys that were the best in the world at that time at it. Uh, in, in my layman's terms, I think he's a sociopath. And I think he exhibits all the characteristics. Based on the profile, it basically is going to be a black male released from prison, arrested for a minor traffic infraction, impersonated a police officer. And we got a list of 3,000 names. And damn if Wayne Williams' name wasn't on that list. We eventually would have sent two agents out to interview him. Wayne was on that list because he had been arrested for, of all things, impersonating a police officer. We were expecting a guy with uh, one eye in the middle of his forehead and horns. We were expecting the devil himself. And what we got was, who is this guy? Small, not very threatening at all. Who is this guy? That's Wayne Williams. Get him out of here. Get him the hell out of here. He's not the killer because he, he comes across as a nerd. Let's refer back to Jasper and Eric Cameron. They grew up in West Atlanta during the 1980s. What did they think when Wayne Williams turned out to be the boogeyman, according to the news? He's like the pitcher. He's like the poster child for the Atlanta missing the murder kids. You get what I'm saying now? Like, that's when they say Mr. Murder Shirt, the first thing they think about Wayne Williams. That was the booger man of Atlanta. Like, they, they show us this picture of him. And you know how we be judgmental, you know, he looked like, yeah. You know, he had the glasses and, yeah, yeah, he looked like he could do some shit like that. You know, you know how people be judgmental, you know, really. But, you know, it was, I mean, it was kind of hard to believe. Honestly, I think he could have done some things, but I don't think he killed all those kids. You know, my, my whole thing was, at the time, it was like a lot of racial stuff going on. And I think at the time, they didn't want it to be something that would separate the city racially. You know, they didn't want it to be, you know, they didn't want to uh, find out it was some white guys or, or the Klan or something. You know, they didn't want that because they knew what, it, what would happen. Kind of like what's going on now with the Trump yeah. thing. Like, the, yeah. it's divisive. Yeah. Like, you know, it would be you, so divisive. anything that divide people, you could bring in co- confusion and really could tell apart everything. Mm-hmm. We like, the police say he did it. He did it. You know, you, you believe the police. I mean, at least you want to believe the police. Back then, though, you looked at the police officers as your safety net. You know, some people had bad experience with a cop, but for the most part, you looked at this police as, like, they they here to protect and look out for us and make sure we're okay. The day, to be honest with you, is so much information, good or bad, that, how can I say this? Not, it's always a beautiful thing, but sometimes with everything being so open, I don't know if that's good because it it, 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 it desensitized people. The way it is now, man, the world is just so desensitized, man. Like you'll get more attention now from going up to somebody and taping and recording and slapping them on the street than really helping them. Back in the day, you see something happening, you would help. Now, the first thing you hear somebody holler, world star, you know. <laughs> nah, for real. It's like tragic shit going on and somebody <laughs> hollering world star. Like, really, now, you don't look at the police the same. Like, yeah, people don't look at them the same. Yeah, it's not, they don't look at them the same for, for whatever reason. You know, it's kind of like, you kind of, they, they, if the police, you be like, I don't know. I, you know, I can't really, let me see, let, let's look at the evidence. Yeah. You know, let's let's dissect the evidence. You know, everybody, uh, uh, a forensic scientist, all these shows on TV now and all this, let's check the evidence. I began asking Wayne for some hard evidence. 
I needed names, stories, and leads to follow up on, or else I couldn't even tell the story he was painting for me. Jasper and Eric were right. In times of doubt, you have to go back to the evidence, and unfortunately, there's not too much to go off of in this case. But Wayne promised me that he had big things to share, things that would shake the foundation of his conviction. You're going to get to hear from uh, Sidney Dorsey, who was an ex, uh, he was the person, one of the persons responsible for putting me in prison. Now he wants to tell the story about the witnesses he paid and why he did what he did. I'm not in the theories. I'm in the facts. And, and what I'm saying is, is there are some facts that we have from an investigative point of view from the inside of the case that have never been revealed publicly. These are the types of things that, that, that I want to put out and let people come to their own conclusion on. Uh, you're going to hear from a number of people who were involved in this case who didn't necessarily come forward, and they'll explain to you their reasons and all on this. You're going to have an abundance of people that are going to say, okay, well, let me show you this. You know, that's what's going to happen. And you're going to find out all of what happened behind the scenes on this. It, it'll be one of the biggest stories you've ever done, I promise you that. Once you hear that story, you're going to say, oh, my gosh, you're going to really understand this story. But it was hard to get the details out of them. You're going to find out about all of that. You're going to get all of it. You're going to get all of it. You're going to get that. We're going to get all of that for you. You're going to get the whole deal. All of this is going to open up. You're going to have more than enough background on that. I'm going to definitely talk about that. You're not going to believe it. It's incredible. These are things that you're going to learn as we talk. All of this you're going to get. All of that. You're going to get all of it. Trust me. You're going to get all of that. You're going to, you're going to get the whole detail. we got a lot to talk about, man. But believe me, you're going to get it all. You're going to get that. You, you're going to get all of that. Don't, don't worry about it. That's going to come. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots. 
the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Over time, I picked up on some of Wayne's stories and began looking into them. The next thing Wayne brought up was physical evidence that linked some of the victims to other suspicious groups. Over, I think it's several thousand fingerprints that they took in this case. There's not a single fingerprint. If the victims, hey, if you're saying 20, 30, I don't have many it was, we don't even know. If you're saying these folks had association with Wayne Williams and his environment, surely there would have been some forensic evidence or fingerprint for some of the victims in a house, car, some of mine, nothing. You understand what I'm saying? This was a true witch hunt. So and we want to attack the witnesses that lied and why they lied under this right here, because they were trying to get a half-million-dollar reward. Wayne seemed to be right about this, the fiber evidence at least. A Washington Post article from 1982 quotes crime lab microanalyst Larry Peterson, who worked this case and stood behind the fiber evidence. He's quoted saying, We didn't have any bullets or fingerprints, only what we got off the bodies. Okay, you've got groups of killings. Some of them were unrelated to others. They just happened at the same time. You've got six to eight cases that we know 
that white supremacists were involved, and we know this for a fact, including certain, there are certain physical evidence, Caucasian fibers you never heard about. We know for a fact in six of those murders, we know this for a fact based not just on their assumption, but based on the physical and biological evidence, the finding of Caucasian fibers in addition to witness, in other words, on the scientific evidence, we know this for a fact. But I don't want it to be put out where the KKK did out at Landmark. Oh, no, 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 no. We're only saying we know they did six. According to FBI records, two Caucasian head fibers were found on the body of Charles Stevens. But it didn't seem to be a recurring pattern, from what I could find at least. And then, Wayne brought up a homosexual ring. We know that another six cases were involved in a homosexual ring going on in Atlanta, a black homosexual ring. It's been learned that investigators have now found this man, Tom Terrell, and questioned him today about his role in some type of homosexual ring operated out of this home in northwest Atlanta. That ring apparently involved the latest child victim, Timothy Hill, and through recent findings may have linked together several other children on the task force list. I read about this man, Tom Terrell, in my research, and he did seem like a pretty suspicious and potentially dangerous man. Tom Terrell owned two houses on Gray Street, one that may have been a haven for pedophiles and sex offenders, and one that was his place of residence. A witness said that he'd had sex with one of the Atlanta child murder victims, Timothy Hill, at one of Tom Terrell's houses on Gray Street. He also claimed to have seen at least 10 other victims at the same house. Terrell knows this man, Larry Marshall, now in a Connecticut jail on armed robbery charges. Marshall is believed to have known at least three of the victims, Patrick Baltazar, Timothy Hill, and Joseph Bell, who is still missing. Before his arrest, Marshall shared a house in West Atlanta with this man, Jerry Thornton. Thornton says police showed him pictures of the child victims, and he recognized 10 of them. And Marshall is an acquaintance of Tom Terrell. Terrell lives in this house on Gray Street Northwest, where several of the victims are said to have spent some time. The house has also been linked to an alleged sex for hire ring involving young boys. Police have been watching the house, and investigators have talked to Terrell a number of times. So far, though, no one revolving around this homosexual ring has been arrested as a suspect. It's not known what Tom Terrell has told police or just how helpful Larry Marshall might be if he decides to cooperate. But even investigators who are skeptical about Marshall's possible contributions to the case say this sex ring is an important investigative theory, certainly worth following up. These are members of Gay Dignity, homosexuals who don't like what the media has been reporting the last few days. Those reports center around a possible sex ring that includes homosexual men, one of them being Marshall. Investigators know Marshall knew Timothy Hill and possibly other boys on the task force list. Hill and the others hung out here in a northwest Atlanta home owned by an admitted homosexual. Although there is no hard evidence, the task force is looking into the possibility that some type of sex ring may be involved in the killings. These gays think the word homosexual has been used too much. You know, they, they re-emphasize homosexual in every adjective or nouns in most cases when they're talking about this incident rather than just speaking of the word sexual. As I stated earlier, in many cases when there's rape and so involved, the headlines do not read heterosexual man. It reads sexual assault or something like that, but it does not read heterosexual. And uh, the word black, you know, another comparison. When it's a person who is a criminal, they don't refer to the person as a black man or a or a yellow man or a Chinese man, they refer to him as a man. The gays already think they are stereotyped and that the latest theory involving homosexuals will do nothing to help the problem. 
They're afraid that if it is a homosexual committing the crimes, then they all will be condemned, not just the one person. They have now offered to help the task force in any way, hoping to stop the implications. Clearly homophobia was continues to be rampant. Um, people are not necessarily speaking candidly and freely about gay identity. There is a lot of incredibly inappropriate conflation with gayness and predatory behavior, and particularly with gayness and predatory behavior towards children. So, you know, it's, it's not a distant step for people who are thinking in that way to think, well, certainly somebody who's gay would be somebody who might be a danger to children and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Although there's clearly no real evidence for such a connection. And so that clearly seems to have had a, a role to play in how people were thinking, first of all, about the murders, thinking about the children, um, thinking about the, the taboo around talking about how some of the children were assaulted, not just because of a, a kind of respect for victims, but also because of a sense of, of soiling, of taintedness because of any kind of connection with homosexual activity. So like all of that was a part of that conversation. And then you have these murders clearly of young black gay men, whether it's part of this pattern or a separate issue. It's hard for me to understand how the murders of these fully adult, albeit young men, feel the same as the murders of six and eight and nine-year-olds. But all of that serves together to further marginalize, vilify, shroud in secrecy and taboo and taint the victims and to some extent ultimately the man who's accused of the murders. During that time period, we were not looking at child trafficking the way we are now. We didn't talk about child prostitution back then and how children could have been picked up and used for illicit means. During that time, very homophobic time, too. People could not accept people for who they were. And there, every person who was a homosexual was considered to be a pedophile, which is not true. It was, it was so disheartening to see that negativity that also was pointed at the, at the gay community. But that was the time, thanks be to God, we have grown. But that was really very frightening. That was never looked into, as far as I know, by law enforcement, sex trafficking. Not homosexuality, but sex trafficking. So, you know, did they look into known pedophiles? I mean, it could have, it could have been a pedophile who did this. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, 
a military-trained seduction spy, reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. No matter how you slice it, Wayne became a suspect the night he was stopped on the bridge. We had two people under both sides of the bridge, police cadets, and of course we kept them hidden out. And then in in close proximity, we had a chase car on each side of the bridge, and they, they too blended in so that they couldn't be seen. About two or three in the morning, they heard a huge splash. 
woke up the two guys underneath the bridge. One of them, who was a high school swimmer, he said, that's a body hitting the water. And he looks up, and he radios his friend across the bridge. Is there a car on the bridge? There was only one vehicle on that bridge. The guy says, yeah, it's starting to move slowly. The car appeared to be just starting up again, like it had been stopped, and it was going two or three miles an hour. Then uh, across the bridge... Uh, circled around, I think, a convenience store. Pulls around right in front of a police car hiding in the bushes and goes back up the highway to a 285 while they chased him down. And as soon as he pulled off... That's when our cars tagged him. They got him. There's a lot of ambiguity about what actually happened that night. So I asked Wayne for his account. The officers Wayne mentions in his account are Agent Greg Gilliland of the FBI, two rookie Atlanta police recruits... Officer Bob Campbell and Officer Freddie Jacobs, and Atlanta police veteran Carl Holden. Allegedly, the recruit Officer Campbell was stationed under the bridge, and Officer Jacobs was stationed on the bridge, and Holden was in his car at a nearby liquor store. The James Jackson Parkway Bridge connects two counties, Fulton County and Cobb County. And apparently, at the time of the incident, there was a liquor store on the Fulton County side. South Cobb Parkway, the route Wayne was apparently taking that night, goes over the Chattahoochee River, The Chattahoochee, of course, is where bodies have been showing up. I I hadn't even gone to sleep. I had been up all day doing a kitchen test. I was dead tired. I was coming from uh, uh, trying to find an address off the top of Parkway. It it turned out to be a a, a fake address on one of the auditions. We had that quite often, and the address was no good, so I was returning home. And as I came home, like I said, I went south on South Park Parkway, across the bridge. Uh, as I crossed the bridge, I turned into that gravel parking lot to my right. Briefly turned, you know, turned on the lights, looked for a number, turned back on the road, proceeded about a quarter of a mile to what I identified as the liquor store, which was on the left. So I picked up some boxes there, crossed the street, I made a call and turned back north, back across the bridge to get on I-285. As I approached the bridge, I saw a car headlights halfway in the road. He pulled back and let me pass and turn in behind me. It turned out that the headlights were those of uh, Carl Holden, the Atlanta police officer, who was parked beside the liquor store at the bridge. They followed me on to 285 where I was stopped. Campbell, the loader bridge, he says he heard a splash. This was the radio sequence, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, three. During this time, Campbell said he was asleep. He got up, he walked about 50 yards to the edge of the river. He shined his light on the water, he says he saw ripples. He said he looked up on the bridge, he looked up, back down at the river three times, and he said, Freddie, is there a car on the bridge? I just heard a splash. Freddie says, Yes, it's coming towards me. I got a duck. FBI is killing it. Yeah, I got it. It's coming towards me. Stop. That's the time and sequence they testified to in court. There's the contradiction. During that sequence, there's no way any car could have been going south on the bridge turn into the gravel park lot and turn back north, that's an absolute impossibility. That car mine 
had to have been traveling north the entire time of the sequence. Bottom line is, there was no splash. Next time on Atlanta Monster. Do you hear my voice? Uh, yeah, so you have to go to the opposite side of the bridge. So we have um, the rope with a clip that can uh, clip onto uh, Randy. And then we have it clipped on this side, staked into the ground over here. So we want to get a camera on Payne as quick as possible, then Chandler will um, have his camera up here. We're good up here. We're ready on your call. Good down here? Yeah, good here. Action. Atlanta Monster is an investigative podcast told week by week, with new episodes every Friday, a joint production between How Stuff Works and Tinderfoot TV. Original music is by Makeup and Vanity Set, audio archives courtesy of WSB News Film and Videotape Collection, Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia Libraries. For the latest updates, please visit atlantamonster.com or follow us on social media. One last thing. We've set up an Atlanta Monster tip line. Anyone with information, leads, or personal accounts pertaining to the Atlanta child murders can call us and leave a message. The number is 1-833-285-6667. Again, that's 1-833-285-6667. Thanks for listening. I don't know what to believe. I wasn't told what to believe. Materialistic, young and naive. New era rebels against the parent. Ass backwards like crisscross getting lost in these streets. Reality turned thoughts to debris and our hearts to concrete. Weighing me down, I don't know what to believe. Weighing me down, I don't know what to believe. Yeah. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels. 
A Story of California Corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.